let's take our Bibles and go back to Isaiah chapter 7. Now, if you have a bulletin, it may be helpful to refer to the back where we uh, there's a map. And so if you want to use that, we're going to use uh, that map a little bit to try to understand what we're talking about. And we'll put, probably put one up on the screen here in just a little bit. Because this is, uh, we're going back about 700 and some years uh, from where we've been with Matthew. And if Matthew was hard enough to understand, at least those are names that we continue to name our children. And so we're familiar with them. And uh, I don't know of anybody who's naming their kid Shir Jashib, Ramaliah, or there's a really good one in chapter 8, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So, um, but I know Nathan and Kelsey, there's, there's uh, still time for you to switch names if you would like to use that. Or maybe Nathan could change his name to that. That would be awesome. I'd like to see that on the Miracle Mountain badge. Mira. Mahar Shalal Halfesh Snyder. That would be great. That would be wonderful. I uh, had debated for quite some time on how we wanted to approach uh, Christmas season. And I came to Isaiah uh, about four times and kept saying, no, let's try something else. And, kept coming back to it, and I am very glad that I stuck with it finally and made this, uh, made the, the, the connection to come here. So for the next two or three weeks, we will be looking in Isaiah, and then um, for Christmas, maybe we'll be there, or maybe it's another place, but we'll give Matthew just a bit of, an, of, a, of a cameo appearance, and uh, we'll leave him alone for a couple of weeks. Uh, shortly after King Solomon died... Uh, the nation of Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms. There was the the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. If you're going to use that map, if you're not very familiar with your uh, Israel history, uh, then this this would be just a very brief uh, crash course. Uh, The northern kingdom kept the name Israel. So when we read in in the story today, or if we read a little bit, I've put some extra text in there, if, if, and I would encourage you to read uh, a couple of other chapters in the book of Second Kings and in the book of Second Chronicles, and it adds a lot of flavor to this story that we are going to just uh, really just fly by about thirty thousand feet over. Uh, if you take some time this week and read through some of those passages, it really gives a background. But it helps to understand that the kings, uh, that when we're talking about Israel at this point in our Bibles, we're not talking about the twelve tribes of Judah, but really we're talking about ten of them. And so that was the northern kingdom. Now, they're also called Ephraim. We'll see that in our passage. And they're also called Samaria. Samaria was the capital city uh, when they split from uh, the, the, other two, the other two. And where in Jerusalem was the capital there. And so they, Samaria is sometimes how it's referred to. And then the, the southern kingdom was called Judah. That was one of the tribes of Israel that uh, stayed. It was Benjamin was the second and those two tribes make up the southern kingdom of Judah. So if you're looking at your map there, the purple is the southern kingdom of Judah. And that's where our story uh, takes place in Isaiah chapter 7. In just a moment, uh, Rob will get that, uh, if you get that other picture ready, because we don't see uh, the, the big uh, nation, the nation of Assyria on our map. But just above the northern kingdom there in green is the city of, or the nation of Syria or Aram. Syria is uh, the uh, Syria is the nation that is uh, just north of them. Uh, Aram is the uh, is the Hebrew uh, rendition of 
of the nation of Syria. I'll probably try to refer to it as Aram because, as you can see on the picture up here, to the north uh, east of Syria is the country of Assyria. And so they're not the same one. And so uh, Assyria is, uh, well, it's, it's not, not super easy to see, but just northeast of there is uh, um, the, the city of Aram. Uh, so there's the top right corner of your bulletin there. You can see the... Uh, those cities. So these are our these are our characters, if you will. These are our our uh, our locations to keep in mind. If you want to refer back to some of these and find them, even the map in your bulletin there, uh, the routes there are th- what we're going to be talking about. Uh, very, we'll refer to that just a little bit. Okay. Thank you, Rob. If you want to put the screen up, you can do that now. I appreciate that. Just want to give some a little bit of a background to what may be not too familiar with everybody. Now, Samaria, uh, their neighbor to the north, as I said, was this uh, this nation of Aram, or na- nation of Syria, as we read in our Bibles here. And so, um, like I said, I'm, because we have this nation of Assyria, I'm going to try to refer to the other nation as the nation of Aram, or Aram, and uh, to help us keep things straight. And when I say Samaria, I'm talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. Samaria and Aram had a mutual enemy, and that was the the mighty nation of Assyria. And Assyria was rapidly expanding and conquering other lands and peoples. And that picture we showed on the screen is kind of a a visual of how much they took over. They actually extended down even into uh, um, the continent of Africa and into Egypt. And so uh, Samaria and, and, and Aram uh, decided to unite together to uh, resist the Assyrian conquest and to prevent them from taking an, uh, overtaking their lands. And they had tried to get the southern kingdom, Judah, to join up with them, kind of this Palestinian alliance, and they Judah would not. And so since Judah would not go along with their plan, these Aramean and Sumerian armies decided to uh, to go in and invade Judah, and they tried to force Judah's hand. And so their plan was to come into Jerusalem and attack them and conquer them and replace their king, whom we've read as King Ahaz. And this is where we pick up the story in Isaiah 7. We are uh, parachuting into a, a a very tense situation here. Ahaz. Is uh, it says there at the beginning of chapter seven there that uh, Ahaz has, has been uh, besieged, if you will, by these two armies. But it says that they could not attack it. They had they hadn't been able yet to get in and and actually do any damage to it. And this is where we we pick up our story. King Ahaz is very afraid of what these armies are capable of doing. In fact. Uh, just a little bit more of history. They had come in once before and killed many of them, taken many more as hostage and as captives. And so uh, Ahaz was was very much aware of the fact that they could not withstand another attack. They would not be able to defend themselves any further. And so he's trying to figure out what to do. And God sent the prophet Isaiah to him and uh, to deliver him a message. If you look down at verse number 3, it says, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the pool, uh, the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of reason in Syria, the son of 
Remaliah. God was encouraging Ahaz to take heart, to be calm. All of these four different things he told him to do are, are actually two uh, main ideas really just pushed into one thing. Calm down. You've seen those, those uh, t-shirts, keep calm and, and then it says something. This is where, and this is the original keep calm man. He said, keep calm and trust God. That's what he's going to tell him to do. Calm down, take heart, be quiet. And he says, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't be afraid of what God calls smoldering stumps of firebrands. It's an interesting way to refer to an enemy army. Or we call them, we could call them two tails of smoking firebrands. Meaning that these two kings were not as threatening as they seemed to be. They're smoldering. They're, they're burning. They're smoking. They're, they're, they're doing something. They could hurt you, but they're about to be extinguished. So really, Ahaz had nothing to fear from these two armies that seemed so threatening. And Isaiah goes on in verse number 5, and he says, Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. God tells Ahaz here, Though they seek to destroy you, it will not happen. God is promising him that there is no reason to worry about these smoldering, fizzling troublemakers. They are fading threats. Their end is near, and they will not overtake you. And God explains this more fully in the following verses. He says that He will not let their evil plan come to pass. God's going to get involved, and He's going to protect Judah. He'll defend them, and He won't allow them to overtake His kingdom. God is going to snuff them out. Look down in verse number 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. It's an interesting last little line there. Isaiah was sent to Ahaz to persuade him not to fear men, but to trust God. He says, neither Samaria nor Aram will overtake you. In fact, they will soon be overtaken themselves. They will be destroyed, but you can be saved. So don't fear man. Trust God. And sure enough, just a short time later, Syria or Aram was captured and conquered by Assyria. And by the end of the time that God had had, had, uh, announced in verse number 8, Samaria too was gone. The, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was captured. They were led away into exile and no longer a people with a national identity. Everything that God had spoken to him, everything that God had promised eventually, and just as he had said, came to pass. And Samaria's ungodly alliance with other nations had resulted in their own destruction and humiliation. And Isaiah was warning Ahaz not to make the same mistake. Don't do what your brothers to the north have done. Trust God. Have faith in His promises. Believe Him. Take Him at His word. And that's what he means at the end of verse 9. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, if you won't believe, you won't last. 
It's kind of a play on words in the way that he presents it to him. If you don't stand firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. One writer put it simply, trust or bust. There's really only two options here. And if you're not standing firm in your faith, where are you standing? Surely, as the song says, all other ground is sinking sand. But unfortunately, we read that Isaiah did not stand firm in faith. He did not believe. He did not last. He would not heed the prophet's warning. He wouldn't believe God's promise. And by an act of divine grace, God himself spoke to Ahaz and told him to ask for a sign of confirmation of the promise. As if God's promise wasn't enough on its own. God mercifully allowed Ahaz to ask for a sign that what he said was true. And God said he would give it. Now think about that for a moment. There's not very many times in the Scriptures where we find people being told, it's okay, ask for a sign and I'll give it to you. Ahaz could have asked for anything he wanted to. Turn the sun blue. It would have happened. Because God was going to prove His promise in that way. I want to be able to fly. I want that guy to sprout feathers. Something that he would have done and God said, I would have made that happen for you to show you that I am, I'm, I will keep my promise. But verse 10, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. And he goes and describes how vast the, the, the parameters here, as high as you want it, as low as you want it, as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. And there aren't many times when a person is allowed to ask for this kind of a sign. But here Ahaz is allowed. And God was giving Ahaz a chance to believe. He was giving him an opportunity to trust. But verse 12 says, Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, this may sound spiritual. It may sound religious. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. Oh, I don't need a sign. I'll believe you as you say. I'll I'll just take your word for it. Deuteronomy 6.16 does command God's people, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's the verse that Jesus used when Satan uh, tempted him in the wilderness. And he said, uh, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So it might seem like Ahaz was doing a good thing here. Read those other two chapters in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. We find out Ahaz was not a very spiritual man. He was not a good king. He was a, a, a pagan worshiper. He tempted God. One of the reasons that God allowed Samaria to come in and destroy much of Judah the first time was because of Ahaz's sin. And so when Ahaz says this, he's not being spiritual. He's not being religious because the problem is that God told him to ask for a sign. God said, ask me for a sign. Look there in your Bible. Uh, Isaiah was talking before in chapter 9. He was speaking the words of the Lord. But now in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Now God is speaking to him and saying, ask me for a sign. I'll give it to you so that you will believe. God was offering him a chance to stand firm in his faith. But he wouldn't. Ahaz wouldn't ask for a sign because Ahaz already had a plan. Ahaz already knew what he was going to do and it didn't include God. Though he hid behind a false virtue, behind a mask of holiness, 
He was, in fact, faithless, and he intended to seek help from man, not from God. Since he didn't believe God's promise, he didn't want God's sign. And by rejecting the offer of a sign, he was rejecting the promise as well. Carson writes, Behind the smooth scriptural talk lay a plan to outwit his enemies by making friends with the biggest of them, the king of Assyria. Now, if, if we read over in 2 Kings 16, we find out a lot more about what's going on. I'm going to read just a little passage from 2 Kings 16 to help you understand what Ahaz's plan was. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you're quick, and I'll read it uh, for you. But 2 Kings 16 and verse 7 talks about Ahab's plan to get help from the nation of Assyria, the bigger bully, not the little bully, the big bully, and he was going to ask hire them out to defeat his enemies for them. 2 Kings 16.7 says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. This was Ahaz's plan, to trust in the strength of man. He decided to put his hope in what man could do for him, not what God could do and promised he would do. In verse 13 of Isaiah 7 there, after Ahaz rejected God's offer for a sign, we see Ahaz, or I'm sorry, we see Isaiah getting a little irritated, even angry. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, sense Isaiah's frustration as he's speaking to an unbelieving, uh, uh, scheming king who's supposed to be the, 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 the man whom God would bless, whose decisions are going to affect an entire people, and he is acting spiritual and acting pious, and Isaiah can see right through it, and he's getting angry, and in verse 13 he says, hear then, O house of David. So he's now he's not just talking to Ahaz, he's talking to the house of David, he's talking to the, the family, if you will, those, not just the one man, but the man, the, the representation of the line of David. He says, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He's, he's speaking there and he's saying, is it, is it too much that you won't believe me, but now you won't believe my God? Not your God, not our God, my God. He's kind of taken offense that Ahaz won't believe God, his God. He's, 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 not, he's not pleased that Ahaz chose not to believe God and then hide behind this hypocritical religious mask. And Isaiah asks him, do you think it's too hard? Do you think it's too hard to ask God? Are you going to tire God out by asking Him to do this? God's not asking Him to do something difficult. And you wouldn't believe me when I spoke to you, when I spoke God's words to you. Now you won't even believe when you hear God for yourself. Therefore, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And though Ahaz was too faithless to ask for a sign, God gave him one anyway. 
Ahaz says, no, I don't want a sign. And God says, too bad, you're getting one. A virgin will give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, as you know, means God with us. And God was saying that he would be with them. He would be present in their troubles, even when it got bad. Even when they didn't trust him, he would be there. He was able to deliver them, even if they wouldn't believe in him. He would fulfill his promise to Judah in the form of a child. Carson wrote that it, it, when it came to delivering Judah, the king calls in an army. God is looking to the birth of a child. Now there's some disagreement on who exactly this child was tonight. If you would like, we can talk about some of those, those ideas. Did God mean a son that would be born at that time or was he meaning someone in the future? And just how effective would a baby who had yet to be born be for a king who was in trouble right now? But nearly 700 years later, in the town of Bethlehem, a baby, a son, would be born to a virgin. And Matthew wrote of him, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew recognized that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. He came to a people in trouble and in desperate need of a Savior. He came to deliver them. He came to seek and to save the lost. But many, like Ahaz, would not believe in Him. He came to His own, and His own would not receive Him. Now back in Isaiah 7, Ahaz wouldn't believe God. And because he chose to trust in man instead of God, he paid a high price. He forfeited this blessing with a lack of faith. Now, this prophecy of salvation was turned into a warning of future judgment. Isaiah would go on to describe this child as uh, one whose name was a reminder that God was with us, but at the same time, his presence marked punishment because of unbelief. If you look down in verse 15, he says that he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For the, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So here's the promise. Here's the blessing of it. That before he is of the age when he knows the difference between good and bad, the land whose two kings you fear, Syria and Samaria, they'll be deserted. But then he goes on, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now get this. Get what he's saying. The same nation that destroyed Judah's enemies in verses 15 and 16 later destroyed her. Judah's Assyrian deliverers became a greater enemy than Syria or Samaria ever was. And God told Ahaz that the nation whom he trusted to save them would soon crush them and deal with them worse than Aram or Syrian ever would have. However, there would be a remnant. 
A remnant who still trusted in God. A remnant who would be delivered. And though Ahaz wouldn't believe, there would be others who did. Alec Matir wrote, The word of God is about to come to king and people, and rejection of it will bring disaster. But within a disbelieving people, there will be those who have personally embraced the way of faith and based their lives on the Lord's word. And for them, there is light beyond the present enfolding darkness. Isaiah was one who trusted in God, though Ahaz would not. Isaiah was God's man. He was God's prophet. And he believed that God would deliver them. He said in chapter 8 and verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in Him. Now, Ahaz's trouble might look differently for us today. Probably none of us are besieged by enemy armies who are coming in to replace us, to kill us, to drag us off as slaves. But the troubles that we face today are still very real, and the fears that we face are still very real. There are enemies who threaten us. There are those who wish to destroy us and to conquer us. The greatest of these enemies, sin, Satan. And it was for that reason that the baby Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 1 John 3, 8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, since the very first man and woman sinned, man has been faced with a choice about his sin and about his fear. When God confronted Adam in the garden, He says, where are you? And He says, I was... I was... I was... I was... uh, Ashamed, I was afraid. He said, I heard your voice and I was afraid. His sin and his fear. And he had to do something with it. Would he look to God for help? Or would he look to man? Would he look to himself? Will we try to fix ourselves? Or will we look to God to save us? Adam and Eve made aprons of leaves to cover their shame, to hide their fear. But it didn't help, did it? And over the years, religion has offered us ways to fix our sin problem. Sometimes it's try harder. Sometimes it's do more. Sometimes it's be better. And that's nothing more than what Ahaz did. He tried a little harder. He tried to outwit his enemies. He tried to find a bigger enemy to defeat his enemies. He looked to a human deliverer instead of God. And by trying to figure it out for himself, by what made sense to him, he put his hope in man. When we put our hope in man, whether it's in ourselves or whether it's in some other person, you're going to find ourselves disappointed, let down, dissatisfied, and even defeated. But no one who puts their trust in God is ever put to shame. Matir wrote that the abiding truth of this passage is that faith in the Lord and in His promises is a practical approach to life, however great the crisis. Like I said, you might not be facing the kind of fear that Ahaz felt, faced. 
It might not grip your heart in the same way that it gripped his heart, but I'm sure that we all face fears. We all face difficulties, and we are left with choices how we are going to address those fears and difficulties. So what trouble is it that you face? What enemy threatens to overtake you? What causes you to lose heart? What great fear troubles you? What overwhelms you? It could be simply the Christmas season is what overwhelms you. All of the hustle and the bustle and the busyness. It could be a job whose schedule, maybe it's being a parent, overwhelms you. Maybe it's dealing with the holidays and the family and the people that you have to people with that you really don't want to have to do and it overwhelms you and it causes fear. Did you know that the holidays are one of the saddest times for many people? It's a reminder of what they don't have, what they wish they had, what they lost. And the holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, it's a time of fear instead of peace. It's a time of anxiety rather than joy. What is it that overwhelms you? You have two choices to deal with that. You can devise your own plan. You can try to fix it on your own. You can come up with some X's and O's and put some game plan together and say, this is how I'm going to deal with it. This is how I'm going to get through it. This is how I'm going to handle it. I'm going to shove it all down deep inside in my feelings and I'm just going to ignore it. Or I'm going to vent it out in some way and I'm going to uh, drown my sorrows in a bottle. Or I'm going to uh, go out and, 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 and party and forget about all of it. We're all faced with the choices of how we're going to deal with what troubles us. We can do it in our own power. We can do it by our own wisdom. Or we can look to God. We can trust in God to deliver us from these fears. We can look to Him or to someone else to meet our needs. But when we choose not to trust God, and instead to find our safety or our success or our deliverance or whatever it is that you need, it might work for a time until it doesn't. And we see from the story of Ahaz that for a while it worked. Assyria went down and destroyed Aram and Samaria and then turned on Judah. And just a short time after they became the Savior, they became the enemy again. Just a short time after they were delivered, they were destroyed by the same enemy. It's as if we grab a tiger by the tail. And it's fun. It's exciting. Oh, this is working until he turns around. Until he attacks you. He betrays us destroys us, and it leaves us worse than before. The first person to ever hear the promise of Emmanuel. God is with us. The first person to ever hear that was an unbelieving king who trusted in his own plans and in his own strength and in the strength of men 
and instead of God. And his failure to trust in God resulted in great loss, and it caused him to forfeit God's blessings. Now that promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. We get to look back, as we talked about last week, and with uh, greater clarity and, and unambiguously, we look back and we see that the promise of Isaiah 7.14 is fulfilled in Matthew 1.23, Luke 2.14, and we see it's Jesus. So now what are you going to do with the promise? God is with us. What are you going to do about it? When trouble comes into your life, when fear rises up, when enemies threaten, what are you going to do? To whom will we turn? May we heed Isaiah's words. Be calm. Be quiet. Do not fear. Neither let your heart be faint. Instead, have faith in God. Trust in Him. God is with us. The thought of Emmanuel ought to shape our thinking. It ought to affect every aspect of our lives. Let that truth determine how you're going to live today and how you're going to face tomorrow and how you're going to deal with the challenges that come to you this week. Some of you have some pretty big decisions to make coming up very soon. Some have some uh, tests coming uh, for them. Some have a long road ahead with no light necessarily at the end of the tunnel. And we're dealing with things and they grip our hearts and they bring us fear and anxiety. And it's almost as if no hope can be found except Emmanuel. God is with us. The fulfillment of Emmanuel means that God's word is true. We can trust him. We can believe Him. So friend, whatever you're facing, trust God. If it's an enemy that's threatening you, look to the God who is with us. If it's battling with certain sin, turn to God, the God who is with us. We need only to believe His promises. Let me close with the words from Paul. Romans 15 and verse 33, it's a blessing that he gave to the Roman Christians, but it's a reminder of the truth about Emmanuel. And it simply says this, may the God of peace be with you all. God is with us. Let us remember it. Let us stand firm in the faith that Emmanuel brings. And let us trust in the God. Yes.